0: Girl Podcast. I am your host, Kristen. Today we are talking about the Fox Sisters, arguably some of the most famous mediums of all time and certainly can be credited with the mainstream launching of the spiritualism movement in the 1800s. They were frauds. Let's just get that out of the way right here at the start. Um, I know there's some question to that, as we'll cover, but for this episode, as we go through it, There is no doubt in my mind that they were not communicating with the dead. That's not an unusual opinion. I'm I'm not breaking any new ground with my opinion. But there is an aspect of this entire story I'd like to center on today. Their honesty. That, along with my own sense of compassion for these sisters, was not something I expected to find at the end of this research, but is something I indeed Found. Before we get to it, last episode I announced my recent collaboration with Whitman County Humane Society. I mentioned a really cool and fun fundraising event they are holding this month. It's called Howl Oween. How adorable is that? So, Howl Oween is a costume contest and event for your pets. For my local listeners, it is going to be held right here in Pullman at the Gladish Center Gym on October 22nd. Doors open at 1. The entry fee is $10 per pup, and to participate in any of the fun events they've got lined up for your dogs, it's $5 per token, which will get you unlimited participation for whichever tokens you get. So you can enter your pet for as many categories for the costume contest that you like. There's going to be a photographer on site and you can get as many pics as you like with them. There's also going to be a DJ playing. It just sounds like a blast. and I'm I'm, I'm actually like nerdy excited for this. For my non-local listeners or for anyone with a pup who is on the Shire side, I've got one of those too. I get it. There is still an opportunity for us to participate. There is going to be an option offered on the website whitmanpets.org to submit a pic or video of your fur baby all dressed up to be considered for the costume contest. The deadline to submit those is going to be October 21st, so there is plenty of time to whip something spooky or adorable up for them to wear All proceeds, of course, go to the incredible work and services that the shelter provides. WCHS values the human-animal bond, provides stewardship for homeless pets, and promotes compassionate treatment of all companion animals. They are truly our kind of people, folks. I'm thinking ghost or pumpkins. My dogs would look hysterical, dressed up as big ol' pumpkins. If this sounds like something you'd like to be involved with, please check out WhitmanPets.org or send an email to board at WhitmanPets.org for more info. All right, let's get to our show. I am going to read you an excerpt from an interview between a reporter and Margaret Fox Kane. It was published by the New York Herald in August of 1888. Since you now despise spiritualism, how was it that you were engaged in it for so long? The reporter asks. Another sister of mine made me take up with it. She is my damnable enemy. I hate her. My God, I'd poison her. No, I wouldn't, but I'll lash her with my tongue. Yes, I am going to expose spiritualism from its very foundation. I have had the idea in my head for many a year, but I have never come to a determination before. I've thought of it day and night. I loathe the thing I have been. As I used to say to those who wanted me to give a seance, you are driving me into hell. Then the next day I would drown my remorse in wine. I was too honest to remain a medium. That's why I gave up my exhibitions." When spiritualism first began, Kate and I were little children, and this old woman, my other sister, made us her tools. Mother was a silly woman. She was a fanatic. I call her that because she was honest. She believed in these things. Spiritualism started from just nothing. We were but innocent little children. What did we know? Ah, we grew to know too much. Our sister used us in her exhibitions, and we made money for her. Now she turns upon us because she's the wife of a rich man, and she opposes us, both, wherever she can. Oh, I am after her. You can kill sometimes without using weapons, you know. Dr. Kane found me when I was leading this life. I was only 13 when he took me out of it and placed me at school. When I was 16, he returned from the Arctic and we were married. Now comes the sad, sad tale he was very ill. The physicians ordered him to London, but before he arrived, he had a paralytic stroke of the heart. Then he was sent back from London to Havana. Newsboys shouted in the streets of New York the news of his critical condition. My God, it was anguish to my ears. Mother and I were to have joined him in two weeks. He died before we arrived. Then I had brain fever. No one but God can know what sorrows I have had. When I recovered, I was driven again into spiritualism, and I gave exhibitions with my sister, Katie. I knew, of course, then, that every effect produced by us was absolute fraud. Why, I have explored the unknown as far as human will can. I have gone to the dead so that I might get from them some little token. Nothing ever came of it. Nothing. I have been in graveyards at dead of night. I have sat alone on a gravestone that the spirits of those who slept underneath might come to me. I have tried to obtain some sign. Not a thing. No, the dead shall not return, nor shall any that go down into hell. So says the Catholic Bible, and so say I. The spirits will not come back. God has not ordered it. You want to know what are the points of my coming expose? First, the wrappings. Mrs. Kane paused here, and I heard first a rapping under the floor near my feet, then under the chair in which I was seated, and again under a table on which I was leaning. She led me to the door, and I heard the same sound on the other side of it. Then, when she sat on the piano stool, the legs of the instrument reverberated more loudly, and the tap tap resounded throughout its hollow structure. It is all a trick. Absolutely. Spirits, is he not easily fooled? Rap, rap, rap. I can always get an affirmative answer to that question, she remarked. It is, as you say, the manner in which the joints of the foot can be used without lifting it from the floor. The power of doing this can only be acquired by practice begun in early youth. One must begin as early as twelve years. Thirteen is rather late. We children, when we were playing together years ago, discovered it. And it was my eldest sister who first put the discovery to such an infamous use. I call it infamous, for it was. This interview, this expose, would be the first death blow dealt to the spiritualist community at the time. And many of them would have something to say about it. A majority of their replies to the same end. She is a drunk. Whatever she says is unreliable. She will never do this lecture. And there is no fraud to be exposed. But if that were the case, why was it known at the time following her interview that money had been offered for her to keep her silence? The book, The Death Blow to Spiritualism Being the True Story of the Fox Sisters, has a great section on this. See, I've only ever heard of how hard up she was for money thanks to her alcohol addiction that that was the reason she started speaking out never thinking, and none the wiser, that the opposite may have been just as true. The book I just mentioned also does a fantastic job of detailing out various players who had something to say at the time and how much they had to lose, how much was at stake, one of which was, in fact, her older sister, Leah, who chose to remain silent after this interview came out and out of reach of prying reporters, a loud response in itself. But she elected instead to have her husband, Daniel Underhill, who was well-known to be a major supporter of the movement and his wife's continued support of it, speak for her. In response to Maggie's interview, he said this, I have for years helped both Maggie and Katie, and my wife has done everything in the world for them. We have furnished apartments for Maggie twice. They might both do well if they would only keep sober. Maggie can be as nice as you please or as vicious as a devil. Several persons have undertaken to manage her, but all have failed. Nobody can do anything with her. I don't think she's in her right mind. I have done so much for her, and she has behaved so badly in return that I have given her up now and will have nothing to do with her. She says she will lecture, does she? Well, I don't believe she ever will. She's incapable of it. It's a great pity, though that she should say such things about spiritualism because of the odium which will result from it. But it isn't the first time she has said that she would declare against spiritualism. She has had such spells before. It is all bosh about revealing the manner of producing the raps. I don't believe she can do it. I don't believe she knows how they are produced, except that it is done by an occult agency. Of course there are frauds in spiritualism. Madame Dysdebar was one of them. I don't believe much in materialization, but I've seen some real manifestations. They were in my own house. Nearly all my spiritualistic experience has been in my own house, and these sisters were the mediums. Of course, Maggie's statement will be something of a shock to spiritualists the world over, because they regard her and her sisters as the founders of their belief. In my opinion, she is not accountable for what she says. Of course, Maggie would proceed to lecture publicly at the New York Academy of Music on October 21st, 1888. We'll get to that in a moment. The second blow dealt came shortly after Maggie's article was published in October 1888 but prior to her lecture when her younger sister Kate Fox returned to New York from Europe having no prelude to the interview or her sister's determination to publicly denounce the movement and expose their tricks and fraud. As soon as Kate arrived and understood the situation, she quickly joined suit with Maggie, ready to cooperate and include her own testimony. She would quickly tell a reporter, I care nothing for spiritualism. So far as I am concerned, I am done with it. I will say this. I regard it as one of the very greatest curses that the world has ever known. If I knew those powerful spiritualists who have done their utmost to harm me in the past could not do so in the future, I would not hesitate a moment to expose it. The worst of them all is my eldest sister, Leah. I think she was the one who caused my arrest last spring and the bringing of the preposterous charge against me that I was cruel to my children and neglectful of them. I don't know why it is she has always been jealous of Maggie and me, I suppose, because we could do things in spiritualism that she couldn't. When asked whether she would deny any of what Maggie had said of spiritualism, she replied, I will not deny it. Spiritualism is a humbug from beginning to end. It is the greatest humbug of the century. I don't know whether she's told you this, but Maggie and I started it as very little children, too young, too innocent to know what we were doing. We got started in the way of deception, and being encouraged in it, we went on, of course. Others old enough to have been ashamed of the infamy took us out into the world. My sister Leah has published a book called The Missing Link of Spiritualism. It professes to give the true history of this movement so far as it originated with us. Now, there's nothing but falsehood in that book from beginning to end, except the fact that Horace Greeley educated me. The rest is nothing but a string of lies. The reporter asked her about the manifestations in 1848 in Hydesville and the finding of bones in the cellar and so on. She responded, all humbuggery every bit of it. The reporter is, of course, referring to possibly the most famous part of this story and the real birth of the Fox sisters as a household name, the event that shot them into celebrity status and set the spiritualism movement into motion. It's a well-known origin story that has been told many times over, but the long and short of it is this. On the evening of March thirty-first, 1848, Margaret and John Fox and their two young daughters, Maggie and Katie, had retired to bed early. The family was tired, but the early bedtime was at the behest of the girl's mother, who was extremely stressed and exhausted. Why? Because almost since the family's first night in this home, they had been plagued with strange and disturbing rapping sounds coming from the walls, the floors, the ceiling, and the doors. Reportedly, some of these knockings were so sharp they would jar bedsteads and tables. But on this particular night, as soon as the family settled in for slumber, the familiar noises started up, but louder than ever. This was so unusual compared to what the family had become accustomed to and disturbing but because of a discovery the family had just made. John Fox would promptly go to retrieve a neighbor, Mary Redfield, to be their witness. Mary, who had heard the girls telling her prior to this night of these strange nighttime occurrences, skeptically and humorously teasing Mr. Fox that if there was a ghost, she might just have a spree with it, returned with him. To the Fox residence. As soon as she entered, her demeanor and approach quickly changed as she realized the seriousness of the situation. Glancing inside the bedroom, she would see both Maggie and Kate huddled and clinging to each other in terror. The girl's mother drew Mary in to sit beside her and began to speak. Now count five, she would say. Five loud knocks followed. Count fifteen. An invisible force produced fifteen. When Margaret asked it for Mary Redfield's age, thirty three raps were heard by all. Margaret spoke again, If you are an injured spirit, manifest it by three raps, and three raps answered. See, what the foxes had discovered after months of what was assumed to be random nondescript knockings was that they weren't. The sounds were being produced with purpose and intelligence. After settling into bed, one of the girls snapped her fingers a number of times in an attempt to mimic the sounds they were hearing. After a moment, the same number of raps mimicked her. The other girl, speaking in sports, said, Now do this just as I do. Count. One, two, three, four. As she slapped her hands together on the beat. And soon sat up startled as four sharp raps were heard repeating her. So... At this point, Mary, the neighbor, became very interested in what seemed to be an intelligent communication of some sort between them and an unseen spirit, as she did not see anyone moving or any logical, physical source for the sounds. Before leaving to retrieve her husband, she quickly comforted the scared little girl, saying, if there was a spirit present, it had no intention of hurting them. To which one of them replied, we are innocent. How good it is to have a clear conscience. That seems a bit strange, doesn't it? So Mary left and returned quickly with her husband. After he heard it, he called for a Mr. Doosler, his wife, and several others. Soon followed Mr. and Mrs. Hyde, then Mr. and Mrs. Jewell. Some men fishing nearby heard the commotion, and so they stopped over Within an hour, dozens of folks stood amazed and communicating with this unseen entity inside the Fox residence. Via this ragtag group of sudden paranormal investigators, they were able to question and answer their way to the following information. The ghost they were speaking to had been a peddler who had been murdered for the $500 he'd had on him in that very room five years prior. His murderer, a John Bell, had slit his throat and dragged his body down to the cellar. His body was buried the next night. 10 feet below the surface. The night would continue on this way, all of the adult attendees back and forthing with the ghostly peddler spirit until everyone finally got too tired and called it a night. The aforementioned Mr. Doosler, upon returning to continue the next night, would be met with several hundred people crammed in and around the house, all waiting for their chance to hear these strange, intelligent noises. In the weeks that followed, many witnesses would call it a miracle. Many others would call it fraud. The local newspapers got involved. Previous residents came forward reporting that they, too, had been plagued by mysterious rapping, one even claiming she had seen the specter of a man in the home during her stay. Depositions and interviews of witnesses were collected, pamphlets were printed, more articles were published. What initially spread from neighbor to neighbor would spread to the entire village, would spread to the nearby city of Rochester, and before long, the entire country. So, let's go back to the future now, back to 1888. Following Katie's published support of her sister's position, a leading spiritualist and lawyer who was unnamed in the Deathblow book, who had read the articles in the Herald up to that point, demanded that Katie refuse to support Maggie in her expose of mediumistic fraud and that she throw herself upon the sympathy of the spiritualists. If it's not obvious by this time, The creature these girls helped to create 40 years prior had long since taken on a mind of its own and was clearly out of their hands. She would emphatically reject this proposition, declaring that she was done forever with spiritualism and spiritualists. And there was a lot of fear for her in taking this position. She was especially afraid that her two sons were going to be taken away from her. She was of the opinion that her arrest a year prior and the claim that she had been cruel to her boys had been perpetrated by the more highly powerful spiritualist members and highly influential members, namely her older sister Leah and her husband. So it's reported that soon after Katie arrived in New York from England, she quickly sent her boys back to England out of harm's way before fully cementing her position and support of her sister's revelation. Once that was done, it was go time. On October 21st, 1888, Maggie Fox did indeed proceed to give her lecture, revealing the truth to what sounds like a large, distinguished, but fairly split crowd. Those who had built all faith on the afterlife based on the sisters' original tale and the religion that they helped to start, and the skeptical, curious as to how they had pulled it off for so long. Katie would be sitting right there in the audience, giving her assent and support for what her sister was about to reveal by her very presence. During the lecture portion, Maggie would say this, That I have been chiefly instrumental in perpetrating the fraud of spiritualism upon a too-confiding public most of you doubtless know. The greatest sorrow of my life has been that this is true. And though it has come late in my day, I am now prepared to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, so help me, God. There are probably many here who will scorn me for the deception I have practiced. Yet did they know the true history of my unhappy past, the living agony and shame that it has been to me, they would pity, not reproach. The imposition which I have so long maintained began in my early childhood, when with character and mind still unformed, I was unable to distinguish between right and wrong. I repented it in my maturity. I have lived through years of silence, through intimidation, scorn, and bitter adversity, concealing as best I might the consciousness of my guilt." Now, thanks to God and my awakened conscience, I am at last able to reveal the fatal truth, the exact truth of this hideous fraud which has withered so many hearts and has blighted so many hopeful lives. I am here tonight as one of the founders of spiritualism to denounce it as an absolute falsehood from beginning to end, as the flimsiest of superstitions, the most wicked blasphemy known to the world." I ask only your kind attention and forgiveness, and as I may prove myself worthy by the step I am now taking, may you extend to me your helping hands and sustain me in the better path I have chosen. And as was reported in the New York world the next morning, a short wooden table was then placed in front of her. She removed her shoe and placed her foot upon the table. The entire theater became deathly quiet until a series of short, Sharp raps could be heard throughout the space. Three physicians were taken from the audience and brought on stage to get a closer look as the rappings continued, after which they all unhesitatingly agreed that the sounds were made by the action of the first joint of her large toe. That's how they were doing it. I'm sure we are all also familiar with the apple tied to a string as another explanation Maggie gave for the sounds. That is how this whole tale started. When the girls were very little, they would tie an apple to a string, drop it off the side of their bed, letting it hit the floor or the wall, and as soon as their poor mother would come to investigate, reel the apple back up and quickly hide it within their sheets and blankets. Why would they try to frighten their mother like this? Because they were children. They thought it was entertaining. As Maggie would explain that at the time they did it, they were too simple and innocent to understand that anyone could attach so great an importance to the sounds they were making and just didn't realize the real meaning of this deception. As the deception continued, their poor, superstitious mother stressing out and them getting their childish kicks, they continued to exploit the deception by pretending to interact with it, thus the snapping of fingers. In a signed confession published in the New York World, Maggie claimed that they soon discovered that the sounds they could make popping and snapping their joints was similar to the sound the apple would make when dropped, and it did not take long for them to find out that they could easily produce very loud raps by the action of their toe joints, so long as it was in contact with any surface that would act as a good sound conductor. Katie was the first to discover that they could make these kinds of sounds, and they would practice continuously with one foot and then the other until they got so good that it barely took any effort at all for them to do it. Now, the accounts of what happened following the original Hydesville event differ. But the gist of it was that the eldest sister, Leah, upon hearing of the wonderful, uproarious attention given to the girls following the wrappings, bustled her hiney to Hydesville and offered to take Katie home with her to Rochester, curious if the activity would continue with one girl or the other or follow both of them or what have you. Somewhere in this early part of this story, Maggie and Katie claim that Leah did indeed discover exactly how they were making the sounds, and instead of revealing the truth right then and there, putting the kibosh on the whole deception, saw dollar signs and potential to exploit. And interestingly, this woman who had been on this earth for over two decades before her younger sisters were even born and had never before demonstrated any mediumistic talents or leanings prior to the events in Hydesville, suddenly claimed to be able to and started to produce all sorts of wondrous mediumistic abilities. Reportedly, she forced the younger girls into a room to strip down and show her exactly how they were making the sounds. Once learned, she began practicing herself, but being much, much older, at the time with joints not quite as pliable and manipulatable, she could only ever produce the weakest of noises. It's kind of funny to hear the recounting of her when she would try to make the noises, where the younger sisters... Didn't give so much as an eye twitch to produce them. Leah's movements during their public seances were said to be quite pronounced and detectable. I just I, I keep thinking of like the face someone would make when they're constipated. But, you know, given it given it a good go. Uh, continuing on with our story here. At a later date, Maggie and the sister's mother, Margaret, would join up with Leah and Katie in Rochester. Leah would write later in her book about these days and mysterious haunted happenings that plagued their nights. And they all sound so real and are totally believable and so many people witness these things that it all must absolutely be true, right? Right. Okay. Yeah. Shortly after they regrouped in Rochester, Leah and the whole troop ventured back to the now empty house in Hydesville, where this whole thing had started, to finish up some digging that had been started before in the cellar. But this time, as Leah claims in her book, they unearthed fragments of a bowl, bones, teeth, and bunches of hair. Leah claimed that doctors confirmed that the bones were indeed human, but... Of course, the doctor's names are nowhere to be found in her book, and Maggie would say that to her recollection, nothing had been found in that cellar that remotely evidenced a human body and absolutely denies that any doctor had pronounced anything unearthed to be that of human remains. But... That is what was reported. It was big news and a boon to this newborn movement and religion. The Fox family would return to Rochester, and their seances, starting with close friends, would fluidly graduate to more public settings. Spiritualism was now in full swing. The Fox sisters were often running, and a very large chunk of the population made full-on believers. And a certain level of investigation was conducted— but you got to remember, this was the mid 1800s. It wouldn't be until the late 1800s that scientists and researchers would actually take a keen interest in exploring the mystical female medium's body or Freud's dark continent in respects to mediumship and sussing out fraudulent behavior. So it's fair to assume that these exploratory investigations probably weren't all that thorough. So We see how this situation formed, the cause of it, the possible reasoning behind continuing the deception, and how it got away from them. Let's fast forward once again back to the future, back to a moment that I know this story would not be complete without, that would take place a year after Maggie's grand confession, the recanting of said confession. As with most of the Fox sisters' tale, it will most likely forever remain unclear as to exactly why Maggie would recant. She insisted it was at the beseechment of her spirit guides... Uh, spiritualists disgusted with her original confession insisted it was because she had not been paid whatever had been promised to her for making a false confession and the demonstration. And those skeptical all around claimed she had only made that original confession because her time in the limelight had dwindled. And since she wasn't making the money she wanted as a medium anymore, she would do so as one of spiritualism's fiercest critics. And when that didn't pan out, she embarrassingly crawled and fell back on on the only thing she knew to be a sure financial promise. But it was unfortunately much too late for that. That damage had been done. I think it might have been the literal physical demonstration before a crowd of 2,000 people of exactly how she and Kate were making the noises that made it difficult for anyone to buy her born-again medium recanting. To this day, Maggie's confession provides permanent fodder for the skeptics, and her recanting will forever leave everyone else wondering. It's reported that a year after the public confession and demonstration, both women uh, still having a rough time of it, Katie would tell a friend that she believed then that there was more money to be made, proving that the wraps weren't made with the toes. And Maggie would follow suit in reversal of her position in an interview before witnesses claiming she had been made to do it under pressure from opponents of spiritualism and powerful Catholics. I'm going with the truth. They told when confessing. Both of them struggled with alcohol and financial problems, especially near the end. Um... It's only human to do whatever you think is necessary to try to improve your bleak circumstances. And I think that's exactly what they did when they ultimately recanted. I don't blame them for that. I believe in their honesty when the stakes were the highest, not their recanting when their desperation was the highest. Something else that says to me plainly, that their original confession that spiritualism was fraudulent was legit, has to do with something they never said, never did. Leah, their elder sister and claimed enemy for her greed and exploitation of them when they were children, whom they claimed was the mastermind behind the fraudulent exhibitions and continued deception of the public, would die first in 1890. Kate would die two years later in 1892, and Maggie would die last in 1893. Maggie's recantation and resupport of spiritualism and the entire movement had taken place in 1889, the year prior to Leah's death. So, from the moment she told the world that her confession had been a lie— And spiritualism was actually real again. Until her own death, she had four years to take back her accusations against Leah and set the record straight. Publicly acknowledge what she had said about Leah that would have then been considered inaccurate. But neither Maggie or Kate would reach out to Leah before her death And Maggie did not make any attempt to publicly clarify anything with regards to her older sister. Maybe there's more to it than that. That was just the lingering thought I had after this research. Being so close to my own sisters, I can't imagine not wanting to right a wrong like that. Please do check out the two books, Deathblow and the other called Talking to the Dead, that I've linked below. They both were, uh, I thought, really fascinating and thorough. If I did miss anything, as always, please do not hesitate to correct any information that I may have misunderstood. We're all learning this together. And if you feel differently about the Fox sisters' fraudulent ways, if you believe that Maggie's return to the spiritualism fold was legit, I would love to hear why. I appreciate and welcome all takes on the matter. Follow the show on all social media platforms at Paranorm Girl Pod. Joining the Patreon is a very cool way to support the show and an easy way to show me that I am heading in the right direction, that you're benefiting from my diligence, and that you are as hungry as I am for more education about the paranormal. As a para on so many subjects, still, I am always beyond excited to share interesting parapsychological research and scientific papers and studies that I come across in my research. I do just that on Patreon. For my fellow bookworms, there is now a book club readily accessible to any new or current patrons through the end of the year. And of course, the very coveted, much revered, unique thank you and shout out to anyone who supports the show with your contribution. It is so appreciated, guys. Thank you for tuning in today and always. No final note for this one. Please join me Friday for October's first of many special celebratory bonus episodes. I am going to be speaking with Jason and Heather from the Crypto Science Society, so look forward to that. And next week, I've got a couple of returning special guests that you are not going to want to miss. Lots of cool stuff lined up for you this month. October has finally commenced. Let's make it a good one. I'll see you all back here Friday. Until then... Stay safe, keep the nightlight on, and sleep with one eye open.